I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You are trapped under several feet of earth. You are sealed into a space that is large enough to fit you alone. Your supply of oxygen is limited, but even if it isn't, your supply of food and water is non-existent. You are in a place that is meant for the dead, and in this way may be considered among them, but you are not yet of them. What is it about live burial that seems so much more horrific, or at least uniquely horrific, compared to other fates that broadly result in the same type of death. Live burial would typically result in asphyxiation unless you somehow had an air supply running to you to keep you alive long enough to die of thirst. But the idea of being suffocated, horrible as it is, doesn't quite captivate us the same way live burial does. Nor does dying of thirst or starvation on a deserted island, although I might be wrong there and certainly opinions may vary. Some people might be more afraid of being marooned on a barren island than being buried alive. I imagine if you polled the populace though, the live burial would be deemed the worst fate. Being stranded seems to come with at least a long-shot hope of being rescued. They've written classic books that are taught in every level of school, made blockbuster mainstream movies and popular television shows, and generally created legends out of marooned men, women, and children. Live Burial doesn't have the same legacy, likely because it doesn't leave much room for adventure. Instead, it seems to invite you to experience your death before it actually comes to you. The fact that it combines multiple fears into one obviously plays a role. Fear of death, fear of psychological torture, fear of the dark, fear of confinement, claustrophobia, even the fear of never being seen or heard from again. All of these come into play when we talk about the fear of premature burial, be it accidental or deliberate. While premature burial may not be as fertile ground for more mainstream entertainment and widely popular consumption, there have been feature and TV films with the direct title of Buried Alive, plus one television miniseries and dozens of television episodes, ranging from dramas to sci-fi thrillers to reality TV programs. That doesn't even count the Ryan Reynolds film just titled Buried, or the works where the words are just part of the title, like the Indonesian horror comedy Susanna Buried Alive. There are also a handful of works titled The Premature Burial. And then, of course, there are countless other stories that feature a live burial without announcing it in the title. One that I won't name because the live burial is intended to be a gut-punch revelation delivered at the end of the film is fairly famous among horror and thriller fans. Nonetheless, none of these films have left an impression on the public or been part of the zeitgeist the way the film Castaway was, 
or the way that the character Robinson Crusoe is. Linking back to my earlier contrast between live burial and being stranded on an island. Incidentally, I do think being stranded on an island is a terrifying experience likely, and it's a subject that's going to come up in a later episode of the podcast this season. Back to live burial. It hasn't been for lack of trying that films or television programs focused on someone's premature burial, whether literal or metaphorical, haven't found sweeping success. And in the world of the written word, there is an even greater wealth of titles that make direct reference in one way or another to being buried alive, as well as stories that have had a greater impact on the culture. One of the earliest texts I found was an extremely brief and purportedly true account of accidental live burial, written in 1680. Its complete title, A Full and True Relation of a Maid Living in Newgate Street in London Who Was Buried on Saturday the 27th of this instant December and Taken Up, Supposed to Be Alive, the 30th of the Same, Being Buried Near Christ Church Hospital in a Churchyard of the Same. That title is a little more than 5% the length of the entire story, I'm not exaggerating. According to the account, Grace Ashburn was an abused apprentice of the Beechcroft household. She was buried on the 27th, then was heard groaning and crying out from her grave by locals, who finally persuaded authorities to disinter her, where she was observed to be breathing and still warm, at least until she succumbed to the effects of having been left underground without food, water, or, presumably, sufficient oxygen for four days. After she passed, she was put out on display for a penny a gander at a smith's shop so people could see how freshly dead she was, as opposed to how dead she should have looked had she actually died four days ago. It's all rather macabre, even before you get into the business of the bruises left on her body by Mr. and Mrs. Beechcroft, including a scar on her head. The abuse seems to have likely contributed to her eventual death, although the author of the piece is non-committal about that. The author also approaches the story as though it were a miraculous event. Grace is compared to Lazarus, who, lest anyone is unaware, wasn't just brought back from the dead only to die moments later, so it seems like a poor comparison. In the same vein, the author notes that the victimized, frequently beaten Grace was often known to lament that she would, quote, rather to be buried alive than to live under such hard and severe usage, end quote. While the author half-heartedly tries to leave his thoughts on this somewhat ambiguous, it's clear enough that he sees her comment as a prayer potentially answered, supporting his opening statement that, quote, Strange and wonderful are the workings of Almighty God. End quote. The ordeal of being buried alive and living under such conditions for days is not explored at all in this text. We don't get any details about the way the neighbors felt either, hearing the miserable cries of someone who is supposed to be dead lying in their grave. Nonetheless, it proves to be, in an unexpected way, a horrific account of a live burial that reveals something disturbing about the way a society might view victims of abuse, possible murder, and then a fate arguably worse than death, and the mental contortions one might go through to make it all sound like a miracle instead of a nightmare. Another story, that of Ginevra Degli Almieri, 
allegedly dates back to possibly 1396, though there's no official documentation to support this that I could find. It was later made into a movie in 1936. The account I found of Ginevra's story on the Leonardo da Vinci Art School website has a little bit of everything. Romance, tragedy, perseverance, and obviously, horror. In a classic setup, Ginevra wants to marry a boy who her father disapproves of. Instead of letting her be with her beloved Antonio, her father makes her marry some unlovable bum named Francesco. That's probably unfair, I'm sure he had someone out there for him, but it wasn't Ginevra, and he had to know that, but went along with it anyway, so I'm maintaining my assessment of him as a bum, especially in light of what happens next. Francesco is too busy being a businessman to give his wife proper attention, and since LL Cool J is still centuries away from being born and making the song Loungin' to specifically warn guys about this sort of thing, Ginevra eventually dies of loneliness and heartbreak. Or does she? Well, of course she doesn't, or else she wouldn't be one of the subjects of this episode. Indeed, she's mistaken for dead, is entombed in the family crypt, and then wakes up later, understandably terrified. Her fear gives her strength enough to move the heavy stone lid above her and escape her grave, but unfortunately her ordeal isn't over. When she goes home and asks Francesco to let her inside, he believes she must be a ghost and refuses to let her in. Her own father gives her the same treatment when she tries to go to her parents' house instead. Stuck outside, weak and afraid, she finally thinks of the one person she's sure won't turn her away, good old Antonio, the man she wanted to be with in the first place. Sure enough, despite having heard of her alleged death, Antonio figures, what the hell, even if she's a ghost, she's the love of my life, and I'm not going to leave her out in the cold, alone, and afraid. After all of this horror and hardship, things wrap rather happily for Ginevra and Antonio. When they seek to get married and Francesco tries to complicate things, the church sides with the two lovers. Why? Well, because Ginevra did allegedly die, and most marriage pacts have some form of till death do us part in play. It's a hard-earned happy ending, and there's little wonder that legend was eventually made into a movie. I've also seen it adapted into a comic twice, once in Out of Shadows issue number 14, the other being a loose adaptation of the legend from Suspense Comics number 5, which relocates the story to France as opposed to its original setting in Italy. I'm actually surprised this story hasn't been adapted at least once by every romantically inclined country on Earth. The two previous tales of premature burial seem to soften the blow somewhat. Neither primarily focuses on the awfulness of the experience. The former regards it as a sort of twisted blessing, focusing more on the horrible conditions the servant lived under, which, to be fair, was probably worthy of more attention than the potential live burial, at least when it comes to a more prevalent societal ill. The other presents it as harrowing, but ultimately a vessel for liberation from a loveless life. Yes, the legend goes on to say that Ginevra's ghost still haunts the streets of Florence every first Tuesday of the month, reliving what she suffered through after getting free from her grave, but she notably doesn't haunt the grave itself. The implication is that going from house to house and being rejected by those who believed her dead was more impactful to her spirit than waking up in a tomb. Conversely, a couple of New York Times articles from the late 19th century, snippets though they are, managed to make reportedly true instances of live burial appropriately nightmarish. In February of 1885, 
a recently deceased man named Jenkins from Flat Creek, North Carolina, was dug up to be reinterred in a family plot. From the article, quote, The coffin being wood, it was suggested that it be opened in order to see if the body was in such condition that it could be hauled 20 miles without being put in a metallic casket. The coffin was opened, and to the great astonishment and horror of his relatives, the body was lying face downward. The hair had been pulled from the head in great quantities, and there were scratches of the fingernails on the inside of the lid and sides of the coffin. End quote. One year later, the Times published an even shorter article about a girl named Collins from Woodstock, Ontario, who suffered similarly to Jenkins. Quote, Recently, a girl named Collins died here, as it was supposed, very suddenly. A day or two ago, the body was exhumed prior to its removal to another burial place, when the discovery was made that the girl had been buried alive. Her shroud was torn into shreds, her knees were drawn up to her chin, one of her arms was twisted under her head, and her features bore evidence of dreadful torture. End quote. In both of these articles, it takes only a sentence or two to convey why premature burial is so horrible. The unfortunate Collins and Jenkins both seemed to struggle in their tight prisons so desperately that they eventually drove themselves mad, tearing hair out, tearing apart clothes, twisting themselves into positions that only made it more impossible for them to break out. In both cases, as well, certain limitations, whether of caring or capability, with medical professionals contributed to the horror. An illness or condition that might make a person present as dead when they were not was obviously more of an issue in days when doctors and nurses knew less or, sometimes, cared less, or were in a greater hurry to dispose of a body, perhaps in hopes of preventing an illness from spreading. When the cholera pandemics of the 19th century reached Europe and North America, for instance, the rush to bury the dead to help tamp the spread of the disease produced many unverified stories of still-living people being thrown in mass graves or placed in coffins. This spread taphophobia, the official term for the fear of being buried alive, among the populace, and it is a fear captured well in Antoine Wirt's painting L'Inhumation Précipité, which directly translates to the hasty burial, although it's more commonly known to English speakers as the premature burial. It depicts the struggle of a man able to lift the lid of his coffin high enough for us to get a glimpse of his terrified and astonished face, and for him to get his hands free but not enough for him to climb out because of another coffin resting atop his. In response to this fear, among those who wouldn't be subject to burial in a mass grave, there came an increased interest in safety coffins. Before the cholera pandemics in the 1790s, the first two safety coffins of Europe were created. But the 1800s saw an increase in their number and variety. Some were simply equipped with a mechanism that allowed for communication with the rest of the world, such as a string that could be pulled to ring a bell and alert everyone above ground that you were still alive down there. Others had tubes installed to ensure the buried would have a supply of oxygen while awaiting rescue, or a different tube that would allow a potential rescuer to view the person in the grave to ensure they were actually alive and not ringing the bell only because the cord tied to their wrist was pulled when the genuinely dead body shifted as a result of natural bloating or other processes that come post-mortem. 
The Wildwood Cemetery in Pennsylvania has a burial vault designed for the Purcell family that has escape hatches built into it. Many other accounts of accidental live burial were born in the 1800s. Often, it's hard to ascertain whether these are legitimate incidents or simply legends. There is the story of six-year-old Annie Marie Twenty of Minnesota, for instance. In October of 1886, she appeared to die after a hard fall and was buried. But at the insistence of her mother, who believed the girl had only been comatose, she was later disinterred. Similar to the young girl Collins from Ontario and Mr. Jenkins from North Carolina, she was found no longer lying on her back, but on her side. There were scratch marks on the inside of her coffin, and she had torn some of her hair out, allegedly. My search of newspaper articles from the entirety of the 1880s and even into the early 20th century didn't turn up any hits for this story. And while many websites or videos that retell the story present it as legitimate, the ones that cite their sources all point back to articles that explicitly refer to it as a legend, the inspiration for a local ghost story that has lingered into the present. And while I adore localized ghost lore, it appears that the case of Annie Marie Twenty is only that. Conversely, multiple newspapers from Ohio to New Zealand documented the story of Anna Hockwalt, apparently buried alive in Dayton, Ohio in 1884. A local paper, the Daily Dayton Herald, dismissed the story as an unfounded rumor. The New Zealand paper, the Daily Telegraph, claimed its source as an unspecified Tribune, Ohio special edition, and also claimed at the end of its write-up that efforts were made to quote-unquote conceal the case. These kinds of stories, be they almost certainly apocryphal or potentially plausible, were numerous enough to spread taphophobia. The phobia was strong enough to result in the formation of the London Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial in 1896. An article on the subject from collegeofphysicians.org, written by Caitlin Angelone, gives us an image of one of the perks paying members were privy to a personal authorization for death verification document, which specified that you were not to be buried or cremated until two independent medical examinations certified that your body was beginning to rot. All of this is not to say that the fear of live burial wasn't scoffed at by anyone or even many people. An article in the February 1904 issue of the British Medical Journal claims that such fears were drummed up by, quote, certain portions of the press, end quote, and that most people weren't concerned by it. And even those who were concerned were mostly fearful of the idea of waking up alive in a coffin and enduring a prolonged struggle to survive. The article then assures its readers that a person enclosed in a coffin would almost die as quickly as one thrown bound hand and foot into the depths of the sea. I'm going to go ahead and reiterate that this comparison reads as an attempt to reassure readers of the British Medical Journal that the notion of being buried alive wasn't all that horrific. It would just be like having your legs and arms tied up and tossed overboard to drown in the ocean, so why all the consternation? While the journal's skepticism about the likelihood or frequency of premature burials is understandable, the suggestion that most of the public weren't even thinking about it is undermined a bit by how often the journal itself had to address the issue. 
in volumes spanning from 1881 to 1930, and even its own earlier articles that directly state that the dread of live burial haunts more than a few persons. The fact that the journal addressed the issue so often and so defensively in the 1904 article in which it ultimately lays blame for any possible premature burials at the feet of the public, which hasn't pursued the remedial laws that the journal declares physicians have pushed for, speaks to an underlying related fear that I alluded to earlier. The fear of having your life effectively ended by medical professionals. Not necessarily because they are acting out of malice, but because they are human prone to mistakes, to fatigue, to distraction, or just ignorance. No one can know absolutely everything, after all, not even in the field that they dedicate their life to. The fact that someone trained in medicine knows more than the untrained person often produces less trust than suspicion in the untrained person. Some people will always be wary of someone who knows more than they do, particularly if their life is on the line. It's not always a rational sentiment, far from it. But I think for many of us who've ever had to undergo any kind of important medical procedure, it's at least relatable. And I feel now is as good a time as any other to remind everyone listening that while the podcast is titled Healthy Fears, that is not exclusively what I focus on. Distinguishing what is relatively healthy from what is relatively unhealthy requires some exploration of what can at times be unhealthy, at least in my opinion. Back to the topic. While cholera is generally cited as the primary inspiration for the increased fear of live burial, a different condition makes the most memorable impact in literature of the 1800s. Catalepsy is defined as a medical condition characterized by a trance or seizure with a loss of sensation and consciousness accompanied by rigidity of the body, per the Oxford Dictionary. While this can result in the body being frozen in any number of positions, most stories of the era go out of their way to make the afflicted appear flat, legs straight, arms at their sides. Corpse-like. Most famously, this potential liberty with the effects of catalepsy is employed by Edgar Allan Poe. In Berenice, The Fall of the House of Usher, and in The Premature Burial. These horror classics were not the only works of the time to feature this plot, however. In Edith Nesbitt's gothic short story, Hurst of Hurstcoat, the title character, John Hurst, may or may not have made his wife susceptible to catalepsy by means of the black magic he's been interested in at least since college. And the physician friend visiting him may or may not have made a terrible mistake in declaring her dead and fit for burial. As horrible as that mistake would be, it would still pale in comparison to a deliberate act of burying someone alive. There is an extensive, gruesome history, and unfortunate present even, of live burial being employed as a sadistic torture and or method of execution. And in the realm of fiction, a number of tales have used it to terrify audiences, most notably perhaps in the story The Cask of Amontillado by Edgar Allan Poe, who else? But I won't be going into that story next, nor any other conventional short story or novel. I won't be citing examples from movies or television either, because this presents an opportunity to dive into another medium I haven't yet had a chance to really get into in this podcast. In season one, I managed to talk about films, television series, books, even a little bit about video games, and one episode where I got to go into classic horror radio teleplays. When it comes to live burials, however, 
Nothing else seems to quite have the same penchant for it, at least in my opinion, as does Golden Age horror and crime comic books. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I own a horror comics anthology titled the mammoth book of best horror comics. That title has to be considered a little bit of a lie. It is a book of horror comics, and while mammoth is somewhat subjective, I'd say anything that contains over 50 stories and 500 pages fairly qualifies. So that leaves one other word to be the betrayer of truth in this circumstance. Nonetheless, even if its comics are not actually the best, it's a reasonably entertaining collection. And of the over 50 stories within, 20 are from the golden age of comic books. Of those 20, two conclude with characters being buried alive, and in one of them, it happens multiple times. Now, two stories out of 20, 10%, might not seem like a significant figure, but think of all the horror movies, books, and short stories you enjoyed in the last year alone. And imagine if at least one out of every 10 either centered their story around the prospect of live burial or went out of their way to wrap their story up with one. Because make no mistake, Golden Age comics writers would gladly take a detour, if necessary, to get to a premature burial. I think this is most evident in one of the classic EC horror comics. Now, EC by no means had the market cornered on the subject. Neither of the aforementioned stories from the Mammoth book were EC products. But the story that stands out to me from good old entertainment comics is titled jury duty. It was released in August of 1951 in an issue of Crime Suspense Stories, but was appropriately labeled at the time as a story more befitting The Haunt of Fear, one of EC's big three horror titles along with The Vault of Horror and, of course, Tales from the Crypt. The reason why jury duty stands out to me should be apparent if you'll permit me to spoil the story for you. It's the tale of Peter Kardoff, a convicted murderer in Georgian or Victorian-era England. I'm not schooled enough on either of those eras to know just based on the clothing alone which one I'm looking at. But Mr. Kardoff is sentenced to hang for his crimes. After his sentence is carried out, he is declared dead and his body is left to be carried off by his servant. I don't know if that was customary at the time. His neck has been gruesomely broken, but he lives on. He summons his lawyer to make sure he's legally declared dead and uses that as a loophole to exact his revenge against the jurors who convicted him. 
murdering them one by one. While the surviving men's pleas to have Cardoff hanged again fall on deaf ears because, according to local law enforcement, since he's legally dead, he doesn't even exist. So it is beyond the power of the legal system to even apprehend him. You can probably see a few issues with this setup already, the least of which is Cardoff's survival after the hanging. The charm and appeal of classic horror comics never had anything to do with tight plotting that you couldn't poke holes in, even when they were adaptations of well-plotted short stories. The appeal, frankly, was often in the gruesome, shocking-for-its-time conclusions and the artwork. And with that in mind, you can't just have the surviving jurors come to the sensible conclusion that, well, if the law is going to be so nonsensical as to say Cardoff technically does not exist anymore, despite the fact that he's walking around and has been seen by people and very obviously does continue to exist, why don't we just go shoot him? Or stab him? Both, if we want to be thorough. After all, you can't be convicted of murdering someone who doesn't exist. That would not be nearly memorable, cruel, or karmic enough, though, for a proper EC story. Instead, the men gang up on Cardoff, seal him in a coffin, and carry him to the cemetery, all while he screams that they can't do this to him. They are killing him, it's murder, and they'll hang for it. This leads one of the men to point out that what they're doing isn't a punishable offense. After all, no one would consider it a crime to bury a legally dead man. This line of thinking doesn't really hold up based on the gap in logic I pointed out earlier. They could exploit the same legal loophole to just shoot him, or stab him, strangle him, a host of other things that are faster and probably easier than the manual labor involved in digging a grave, securing a man in a coffin, carrying it on your shoulders to the cemetery, etc. None of that really matters. Burying Cardoff alive, even though he's got it coming, is much more disturbing and more impactful than a simpler and more sensible solution. Still, it illustrates my initial point that the classic horror comics would sometimes go as out of their way as they possibly could to give us a live burial. There are at least eight more EC stories that I'm familiar with that feature deliberate premature burial, plus one where it's explicitly threatened on the last page. Mind you, I am a fan of the comics and read them whenever I could when I was much younger, but I'm nowhere near an expert on the subject. There are liable to be at least a few and possibly several other stories I'm unfamiliar with or couldn't find through my search efforts that also have characters burying someone alive. To name the ones that I am familiar with, there's The Screaming Woman, an adaptation of a Ray Bradbury story, Chatterboxed, which also features a safety coffin and some extraordinarily unfortunate timing for its imperiled protagonist. There is Terror Train, Twin Bill, People Who Live in Brass Hearses, and even stories where you'd expect the source of terror to be something else based on the title, like Rats Have Sharp Teeth and Uppercut. Last but not least, there are two stories titled Buried Alive. The first appeared in War Against Crime number 10 in 1949, which also marked the first appearance of the Vault Keeper character who introduced the story. The second Buried Alive appears in the Vault Keeper's actual comic, The Vault of Horror, one year later. The first story, penned entirely by the prolific Al Feldstein, is actually a pretty straightforward tale dealing with a gravedigger, nightmares, sleep deprivation, a comatose state that might as well be the fictionalized version of cataleptic shock, and an unexpected rescue by a grave robber. The second Buried Alive, co-written by Feldstein along with Bill Gaines, 
gives us a recurring plot beat in live burial comic book stories. Someone willingly entering a coffin and or being buried on purpose as part of a scheme. Inevitably, something goes wrong. This brings us back to Golden Age comics beyond the confines of the legendary EC. In fact, the most famous version of this specific type of story may be from My Coffin is Crowded, which appeared in the spring issue of Marvel's Suspense in 1952. What brought it to a wider audience was its later adaptations, first for the Alfred Hitchcock Hour in 1964 for the episode Final Escape. That was remade in 1985 for Alfred Hitchcock Presents. In every iteration, an imprisoned protagonist attempts to pull off a somewhat Count of Monte Cristo-esque jailbreak, but things go as horribly wrong as one would anticipate in a horror story, particularly one with the title My Coffin is Crowded. Two more non-EC comic stories also titled Buried Alive cover somewhat similar territory in that they have characters who don't display a healthy fear of being buried alive and therefore agree to or even come up with a scheme that involves getting into a grave and having dirt poured on them. Eventually, they do come to be very afraid of the situation they've placed themselves in, but not before it's far too late. I believe I've referenced 15 different Golden Age comics about premature burials so far. I might have accidentally double-counted or failed to count one of the multiple Buried Alive titles. I apologize if that's the case. And this is far from a comprehensive list. Again, I'm not a scholar or student on the subject. I'm sure I'm missing many, many more titles that deal with live burial. And I also didn't even mention every story that I came across. I'm not even counting the two adaptations I found of Ginevra Degli Almieri's Legend, for instance, that I mentioned at the top portion of this episode. For more non-EC titles, if you're curious, I'd recommend the website thehorrorsofitall.blogspot.com. Type in the keywords Buried Alive and have at it. It's a decent starting point, and once you've gone through its considerable archive of tales, you might find yourself wanting to venture down a bit of a rabbit hole. If you do head down said rabbit hole, just make sure you've got a way out in case anyone starts filling that space with dirt while you're still in there. Thank you for listening to the Healthy Fierce podcast written, produced, and narrated by Johnny Compton. For transcripts and research notes, if applicable for each episode, visit healthyfears.com. I do try to mention my most significant sources throughout the episode as I feel that's appropriate, but in case I missed any, thank you too. The Leonardo da Vinci Art School website, arteleonardo.com, for the article on Ginevra Degli Almieri. The University of Michigan Online Library for housing the story of Grace Ashburn. The collegeoffysicians.org article written by Caitlin Angelone for the information about the London Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial. And last but not least, the horrorsofitall.blogspot.com, a rich resource for many, though by no means all, of the Golden Age comic book stories about being buried alive. If you're interested in my fiction writing, my publication credits and links to some of my stories can be found at johnnycompton.com. The Spite House, my debut novel, is currently scheduled to be released by Tor Nightfire on February 7th, 2023. Hopefully that gives everyone plenty of time to clear out some space in their book budget for it. 
The subject of next week's episode is the unburied dead for anyone who is interested. Until then, try not to get buried by work or personal obligations or six feet of compacted soil or anything else that might make you feel suffocated. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.